Hey, hey, water coolians. Welcome back to another episode of Water Cooler Talk. Today on the show, we are rejoined for his second appearance by a good friend of the program, Jake Teeny. Many of you may remember the previous conversation Jake and I had about an older gentleman yelling at a young teen ice cream worker over having to wear a mask in said ice cream shop and what that meant for the broader discussion of wearing a mask just one year ago. Remember those times? Remember those discussions? But in this conversation, we kind of uh, continue on that similar path and talk about the recent hullabaloo about the COVID-19 lab leak theory and how it has pretty much restirred the pot on the idea of misinformation, puncturing the current zeitgeist, and the importance of realizing how we discuss topics, movements, etc., and these specific words and phrases we often use to discuss them. You know, I even catch myself, to be completely honest, saying things that could be said in much better ways very, very often. Even in this episode, while I was editing, I found myself realizing I was being a hypocrite to exactly what I just said. Words are so important to how the world understands us at a deeper level and how we see others at a deeper level when we discuss something like COVID-19, calling it the Kung Flu matters and has an impact. How many of you know that Wuhan is actually a major metropolitan city similar to Jake's town of Chicago and not some poor village in the backwoods of China? Understanding truth matters, but also being able to think critically about what truth is and who's sharing that truth matters. And as we've come to understand, hopefully in the past year of just this avalanche of information, there exist many truths. And if you have a legitimate truth to stand on, it's important that you're heard. But with saying that, it's also important to understand that you can be wrong. You're allowed to be wrong in this world. I wanna say that again. You're allowed to be wrong in this world. Somebody who is able to admit when they're wrong adds more than somebody who always needs to be right. How we understand the greater implications of the information given to us is not an easy task. This is not easy. As I incorrectly say, or at least incorrectly phrase in this episode, is that everyone is dumb. That's not necessarily true. But instead, as individuals, we each have different levels of how we understand information. And the recent conversation about the origins of COVID-19 has highlighted those differences and brought forth what I believe to be a very important discussion on how we perceive that information. Where do we get it from? Do we trust that source? Why do we trust that source? All of these things are among a myriad of questions that we should both consciously and subconsciously be asking ourselves. And so it becomes more about finding the balance of asking those questions, but also, as Jake mentions in our upcoming conversation, not giving a platform to questions that have already been answered or don't need answers. We have empirical truth by large swaths of trusting sources that the world is indeed not flat. So there's no reason to give a platform or a megaphone to somebody who believes the opposite. And so that pertains to the question I want to leave with you today, which if you want, you can answer, and I would love it if you did answer, you can answer by commenting on the official episode post for Jake's second episode on our Instagram, at watercoolertalkpod. Where do you receive your news? And what factors play into that source being trustworthy to you? And then as we move our conversation away from COVID-19 and into data collection, Jake and I share our thoughts on a recently filed and approved patent by Spotify to use our emotions for musical gain. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, this is Water Cooler Talk episode 65 titled 
Privacy Paradox with Jake Teeny. Enjoy. This is the story of a podcast that takes weird news from across the world. And while many of these stories may seem fake, they're absolutely not because they're real. Well, Jake, are you ready to jump right back into water cooler talk? Let's get at it. Round two. Round two. This is from Reason Magazine, coronavirus, June 4th, 2021. The media's lab leak debacle shows why banning, quote, misinformation is a terrible idea. Facebook made a quiet but dramatic reversal last week. It no longer forbids or bans its users from touting the theory that COVID-19 came from a laboratory. The reversal states, In light of ongoing investigations into the origin of COVID-19 and in consultation with public health experts, we will no longer remove the claim that COVID-19 is man-made. The change came in the midst of a heated debate about how to respond to the perception that social media is amplifying the spread of false information. For the last several years, journalists and politicians have pushed to police so-called misinformation through various means. Major news organizations have hired mis- or disinformation reporters. Senator Elizabeth Warren and House Speaker Nancy Pelosi have urged social media sites to prohibit speech deemed wrong or dangerous. And more recently, various groups have asked President Biden to establish a federal initiative to combat online misinformation. But Facebook's recent concession that the lab leak theory, which was once viewed as demonstrably false and any line of questioning deemed inappropriate, is possibly true, should put to rest the idea that banning or regulating misinformation should be a chief public policy goal. It's one thing to discuss, debate, and correct wrong ideas, and both tech companies and media have a role to play in fostering healthy public dialogue, but Facebook's recent obsession with rendering unstable anything that clashes with its preferred narrative is the height of hubris. In recent weeks, the lab leak theory, the idea that COVID-19 inadvertently escaped from a laboratory, possibly the Wuhan Institute of Virology, has gained public support among experts. The former director of the CDC under President Trump, Robert Redfield, said that he has cause to believe the theory. And pandemic darling Anthony Fauci has mentioned keeping a, quote, open mind, but reiterated that it was, quote, more likely that the virus first spread from an animal to a person, that zoonotic transfer. To be clear, while some circumstantial evidence may support the lab leak theory, there is still no scientific consensus on whether COVID-19 emerged from a research facility, a wet market, an exotic animal farm, or somewhere else. I know for a time they were talking about it being frozen fish sticks from another country. Uh, the Chinese government has stymied efforts to investigate the origins of the disease, and it's possible the world may never know the full truth. But many lab leak foes have not merely called the theory unproven. They had lobbied for the theory supporters to be effectively silenced. They asserted that anyone discussing it was a conspiracy theorist or even a racist. Indeed, some are still discouraging this conversation. Yet, it's clear that a certain segment of lably critics believed two things. One, that the theory would fan the flames of racism. And two, that for that reason, it should be proactively censored. What's true of the debate over COVID-19's origins is also true of countless other disputes. But no issue has exposed the one-sidedness of the anti-misinformation drive as thoroughly as the pandemic, which has brought us countless examples of leaders and health officials making naive, staggeringly wrong predictions that still continue to the present day, whether it be the impending doom of some southern states like Georgia opening up too quickly, President Trump's advocacy of ridiculous and questionable cures, or the CDC and Fauci putting out information that, in turn, ended up being poor guidance. As various groups continue to pressure President Biden to do something to stem the spread of misinformation, 
An important first step would be for the federal government to inform its own health officials to stop saying things that eventually become false. If social media companies want to help foster the spread of truthful information on their platforms, they should remember that many authoritative sources in and out of government have partisan axes to grind. Any broader effort to shut down conversations that include a great number of lies is likely to inadvertently criminalize some political inconvenient truth, or something that seems untrue, but in the end, is later proved prescient. Lab leak or not. So Jake, it, it, it seems like in the news, there's so much information being presented to us, and it's sometimes very hard to really understand if this information is true or not. We go to these sources that we trust. You know, this is something I've talked about on the show for a very long time. We've even updated our corrections to play into that thought. And I don't know, it's so, it's so tough when you have something like COVID-19, which we still don't have very conclusive evidence of where it came from. So we can't clearly say, all right, it came from zoonotic transfer, as Dr. Felci believes, or it came from this lab leak theory. But I've always been in the camp, and this is something I talked about in a recent episode with Daniel Persilides, that if you have the option to question something, that ability should never be blocked. And do I believe in the lab leak theory? Do I believe it's true? Do I believe it's not true? Eh, I don't know yet. Do I believe it could come from animal transfer? Do I believe it came from a wet market? I don't know. There's not enough information for me to make a conclusive decision on that. But I always believe that we should always have the option to question that why. And it seems like more and more as a society, we kind of pick this one narrative and we say, all right, we're going with this narrative. And if you don't agree with that narrative, you're kind of on the outside. Yeah, no, I think that's definitely the way we see these trends in society going. And I think you're right. You know, it is always good to have an open mind, be skeptical, uh, especially about things that feel good to you. Like when you read a news story, and you're like, oh, yeah, that has to be right. That should be your first sign. Like, hey, maybe I should look into this a little bit more. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you know, you also have to balance that with giving like a, a soapbox to ideas or beliefs that shouldn't be questioned. You know, if we, you know, if we're talking about climate change and, you know, there's all this evidence that shows it, but you could say, hey, well, why can't we question that evidence? It's like, okay, yeah, that's what science does. We question the evidence, find proof. But as soon as you bring that questioning to a main stage uh, news source like Fox News or CNN or some of these places, it's no longer just questioning. You're giving it kind of some legitimacy. And so there's a balance, I think, between trying to question things to make sure we are getting at the truth, but without questioning them in a way that's going to give this alternative, oftentimes crazy perspective, some breeding ground. I, I definitely agree with that. You have to be careful of fanning those flames because, yeah, a flat earther or a you know climate change denier can say, well, look, I have information and data that backs me up. And then if I can get onto one of these platforms that has a built-in audience that has that audience that trusts that source, then you can kind of push this narrative that, I mean, we can easily prove is not true. You know, that's when it comes to this idea of misinformation. I kind of want to ask you your thoughts on this, but like, how do we really improve that control of misinformation? Because we could have something, you know, like the lab leak theory that hasn't been proven to be false. It hasn't been proven to be true. But a year ago, Everyone was saying, if you believe in this thing, you're a racist or you're a conspiracy theorist. And now a year later, there's some evidence, there's not a ton of evidence, but there's some evidence that, oh, this could have been true. 
you know, when the lab bleak theory was first proposed, I was like, oh, that has to be crazy because it fit within my schema of what a conspiracy theory begins with. You know, this like outside force, it has unnatural control. And and then as we started to get more evidence and hear about it, it's like, okay, well, maybe I should temper my initial kind of rejection of the information and look at it a little more closely. So that was kind of a, a little bit of a learning curve for me. But I think, you know, to your broader point about misinformation, it's difficult because oftentimes misinformation isn't misinformation at the time it comes out. Like when it comes out, it's like our best thoughts and understandings of this, you know, and then later on we get information that says, well, no, actually that initial claim was false. And so then all of a sudden it becomes misinformation. It's it's difficult to at first even discern what constitutes misinformation, especially in quickly evolving, ongoing uh, world events like COVID-19 when stuff was first coming out. And I think it is important to draw a distinction between misinformation, where it's people inadvertently spreading false information and disinformation, where people are intentionally spreading mm-hmm. uh, false information to either cause harm or push an agenda. And, you know, I think part of the issue here is that we have this new term like fake news that kind of lumps them both together. When really like, yeah, misinformation is bad, but oftentimes it comes from a place of goodness, like people who are trying to prevent harm, they're trying to do some kind of good, it just the information they're peddling is not actually based in reality. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, and I think that's what we saw a lot of at the very beginning of the pandemic with the CDC and Anthony Fauci and the mass debate on, you know, what we talked about in the last episode, should you wear a mask, should you not wear a mask? You know, at the very beginning, we didn't have enough masks. So Fauci was like, don't wear masks because we need them for our doctors and nurses. And then when we ramped up that production, we we're like, all right, now wear a mask. It wasn't that he was, you know, specifically putting out this information to confuse people. But it's like at that time, like you said, that was the correct information we had. And now a year later, we have 2020 vision and can see, oh, yeah, That was not the correct move. But at that time, that was the best move. And I've never lived through a pandemic like this. You've never lived through a pandemic like this, unless you're a time traveler and you were around uh, during the last one 100 years ago. But we're all learning how to do this in the moment. And, you know, that's one of the things we can look at for the 2020 election cycle. I very much believe if Donald Trump would have handled the pandemic response a little different that he would still be president. But we can also look at that, you know, a few months later since that election and say, we know that information. But during that time, we were kind of all over the place. So you have this, I like that you, you know, we're very clear on misinformation versus disinformation because the words we say matter and how we say them matter because, I, and I don't mean th- to say this in a negative way, but people are stupid just across the board. <laughs> that's why we have, you know, warnings on bleach bottles to not drink the bleach because people are just generally dumb, but not in a negative way. I know that sounds confusing, but take someone like Albert Einstein. I guarantee I could destroy him in Madden. I guarantee he won't even know how to use a controller. Does that mean he's quote unquote stupid? No, but in a certain aspect of intelligence, he's not as smart as someone else. And so when we come to the government, and you know, I'm, I'm not a fan of huge governments, but I understand the government's role in society. And they often have to play to the lowest common denominator because it's the same thing as the bleach thing. It's like, all right, don't cross the street when there's cars coming. That's common sense. But we have to put up the crosswalk sign that says, wait, hold on. There's green lights. Don't go. When it comes to something like a pandemic, you know, you have to look at the response in a broad scheme. You can't look at it in these small little subsections of 
well, people should understand this is how a mask works, or people should understand this is how a vaccine works, but mm-hmm. have to explain it to them in the easiest possible way. And sometimes when you do that, words get lost because you're trying to generalize a definition. Yeah, I, I definitely hear what you're saying. And I think a lot of what you're sharing reflects some of the core issues that we see in some of the misinformation research. And, you know, when you say people are stupid or dumb, I don't, you know, I think what you're, you're not saying that they are not able to see that if A leads to B and B leads to C, A could also lead to C. Like people are generally rational. Mm-hmm. They're able to calculate if this is going to help me, then I'm going to do that. If this is going to hurt me, I'm going to avoid it. I think where the issue comes is where we rely on that information for what's good and what's bad. I think what we see a lot of times, and this is particularly true with misinformation, is we rely on our feelings and emotions to guide what we think is going to help us and what is going to hurt us. And unfortunately, our emotions are not always great reflections of reality. And so that's what often we find the issue or primary issue with correcting misinformation, because misinformation is super hard to undo once it's out there. There's so many terms in psychology defining this like continued influence of misinformation. And a large part of it rests on this idea is you're given a piece of information and that kind of completes a causal chain of knowledge. You're like, well, X causes Y because of Z. And then I say, well, no, no, actually Z's wrong. Z's not correct. Mm -hmm. You know, that was misinformation. Well, now you've got this knowledge gap between X and Y. Well, how does X get to Y? And that feels uncomfortable. People don't like that feeling of uncertainty about this. And so they rely, they continue to rely on the misinformation because it makes them feel better. It makes that knowledge feel better. It makes their understanding feel better. And so when people are acting dumb, you know, you gave the example of the crosswalk. It's not that they don't recognize that a car could hit them and kill them, but they feel that it's not going to. They feel that they're going to be fine. What a big part of the issue in trying to correct misinformation then is, again, trying to address those feelings associated with the misinformation. So if you believe something that's incorrect, well, how can I give you another explanation that fits that knowledge gap of yours? And all of a sudden, okay, I feel like I understand things again. Because if you can't you know, fix that feeling, then people aren't going to respond very well. Well, yeah, I know in our last conversation, you uh, talked about these self-defining attitudes. You know, people will sometimes take these opinions and that defines them. And so if that opinion is uh, surrounded in misinformation, then they become very attached to this misinformation and they're willing to die on that hill regardless of the information that you share with them. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's a a very classic study in uh, social psychology looking at capital punishment and whether or not it helps deter crime or whether it helps crime. And the researchers weren't interested in that so much as they were interested in how people evaluated the evidence, either saying that it helps deter crime or it doesn't have any effect. And essentially what they find is if you already believed that capital punishment does help, then information saying that it doesn't help, you're like, oh, no, that's ludicrous. Their methods were bad. They didn't do this study very well. And then you get the reverse if you think, you know, capital punishment isn't helpful. We're going to support the misinformation that already aligns with our beliefs. So that's like another complicating factor in fixing misinformation. It's like step one, you've got to give them another explanation because they don't like that knowledge gap. 
But then step two, that explanation, they have to be able to believe it and it sounds reasonable. And then three, it's like, well, it also has to kind of align with their beliefs or ideology or their self-defining. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, they're just going to reject it in favor of the thing that makes them feel good, makes them feel like they understand the world. So you kind of have to really walk people through the steps to get to a point, but also how do you, and maybe this is just a general question, but how do you stay safe in knowing that your information is correct, because you could try to walk someone along this line of, all right, I see your point. This is what the information says. This is what I believe the information means. Let me try to get you to this point. But in the end, a year later, that information is different. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, source credibility is taking on a whole new role in kind of this information ecology we live in. It's like you hear a fact and you're like, well, where did you hear it from? Mm -hmm. Was it Fox News? Well, I don't believe it. Was it CNN? Oh, it's fake news, you know. And so we have to use these heuristics. There's a a quote I like, uh, a wealth of information causes a poverty of attention. That quote is attributed to economist Herbert A. Simon. And so we've got this huge amount of information out there accessible on the internet. And so we can't spend all this time kind of digging through it to look what's right, what's wrong. And so we just use little cues. And, you know, if we really want to fight misinformation, it's not going to happen in correcting the information. It's going to happen before that misinformation ever gets seeded in their head. Mm -hmm. Kind of like health is an analogy. It's a lot better to do preventative care. It's a lot saves a lot more money than it is to try and treat the symptoms or the disease once it already emerges. And so, you know. Yeah. And this is something we talked about in our emails Mm -hmm. post episode last time is corrections Mm -hmm. and does corrections even matter after the post. And, you know, now I'm doing corrections in the second because I want as soon as that information goes out there, if it's incorrect or if it's misinformed, I want it corrected because who's really going to listen to the end of an episode and say, oh, I'll change my opinion on that because Mm -hmm. when we hear information, we immediately make an opinion about something. That's, I think, just how humans work. And when we are presented with a change in that information that we've already made an opinion on, we're less likely to really change our mind unless it's coming from a very credible source that we trust that is more credible than the original source. Yeah. And even then, sometimes that's not enough. Like in the classic research on misinformation, what they generally do is they give participants a scenario that describes a warehouse fire. And they're trying to figure out where this warehouse fire came from. And early on in the scenario, when you're reading through it, you learn, oh, there were some oil barrels left in this one room that caused the fire. By the very end of the story, the police, who you'd think is a very objective third-party source, comes in and says, actually, it turns out there were no oil drums in that room. So that could not have been the source of the fire. You give people a slight time delay. You come back and ask them later, hey, how did the fire start? Everybody says the oil drums in in the, in the room. So even if you do have a very credible supportive source, that first information just gets kind of a cognitive advantage in being placed in your head. Yes. And unless you can, again, give them these other explanations that are believable, that they like, that, you know, make sense, they're going to stick with that initial misinformation. I was just reading about this thing when it came to uh, the Watergate scandal with Nixon. And I can't remember the guy's name, but he was nicknamed like the human tape recorder. The man's name was John Dean, who was a White House counsel to Nixon. And he was like, you know, relaying back all these conversations. Everyone was so trusting of him because he's so in detail with what he's saying. And then we get the Nixon tapes and we realize, oh, he's missing a lot of information. And our original idea of what happened in those conversations is now completely flipped. 
especially in the content creation space, and you know this with your website, everydaypsych.com, it's so important to, first off, create a trusting platform where people can go, all right, if I'm going to you know, read a weekly blog on Jake's website, do I trust what he's saying? Mm-hmm. I talk about this with a lot of podcasters. You really have to put in the work to create a trusting product first because eventually down the line, you're going to be in a space where you have a lot of people consuming your product. And if you haven't created that trusting space, you're going to get something like this where a year later, people are going to be like, Jake, oh, that everyday psych <laughs> article, man. Now I'm looking at it. Yeah, no idea what he's talking about. And then your credibility is just shot. Now, mm-hmm. now I look at places like, I mean, I've never trusted Facebook, but I look at places like Facebook or CNN or Fox News and I'm like, I'm less likely to trust them now than I would you know, one, two, three, four years ago. Yeah, yeah, no, totally. I mean, trust obviously is so important in today's kind of news sphere. And there's some really interesting research. There's this guy named Stefan Ludanowski talking about, okay, so what can we do to stop misinformation? Like, how can we get people to trust the right information to begin with? And, you know, as he's shown, like, you got to do it before the misinformation gets planted. Otherwise, it's just going to stick there. Some of the ways that he has suggested to kind of like signal trust to people are some actually really clever ideas, I think, for like social media sites like Facebook. So you you see an article, right? And you say it has 4,000 likes. And you think, oh, man, that that's got to be a really popular article. Mm -hmm. Well, what it's doing is we take those 4,000 likes and think of them just as the 4,000, not as probably the 1 million people who saw the article and only 4,000 of that 1 million actually liked it. Well, now when I see that, I'm like, well, I don't know if I trust that article, if only like such a small percentage. And so there's certain little kind of like cues we can give uh, people online. So who's sharing this article? This being shared by all, you know, your trashy high school friends, or is this being shared by, you know, your well thought and, you know, informative high school friends. And these are other cues that might make us trust more because like you said, just using the name brand of being like a major news source doesn't cut it anymore. Mm -hmm. And so we need to figure out other ways that we can signal trust and good articles to people and similarly make bad articles harder to share in these things. Well, I think it's also important to remember that, I mean, we're all humans here and nobody's really perfect. And I've, with this is episode 66, this is actually episode 65 of my podcast. And, you know, I put out a ton of information and a ton of opinions and not all of those opinions are correct. You know, maybe I look back at our conversation from a year ago and I said something that's not true anymore. But I think that's also very important to remember as a consumer of information is that people are not perfect, but you also have a responsibility to, you know, not hold people to a perfect standard, but to help the process of being informed you know, it's more of a collective unit rather than just trusting CNN or Fox News to be correct. Hold them accountable. Hold me accountable. Hold you accountable. Mm -hmm. And I think it's this collective effort to really fight misinformation rather than just say, well, CNN needs to be more or CNN, I think it mentioned, needs to hire more disinformation or misinformation reporters, or we need this committee to really tackle these things. It's This is a collective effort that we need to put in as humans to fight this growing, it seems like, pandemic. I don't want to use that word, but (laughs) growing pandemic of misinformation. Mm -hmm. 
it's challenging though when we put the honest our onus, however you pronounce that word, on the consumer or the individual because the systems like Facebook or these major news organizations have so many more resources and so much more influence at their disposal. It's kind of like when people are like, well, you need to recycle to save the planet. Well, it's like, hey, about 100 corporations account for 90% of all pollution on this planet or, you know, something insane like that. I think it's 70%. 70%, yeah, something like that. And so, you know, the these organizations also need to do a better job of not kind of playing into people's uh, worse angels or, you know, YouTube knows that arousing content, agitating content is going to be shared more than kind of calming stuff. So they're going to feed you that kind of information. This is another issue with, you know, there was a, a really cool study in 2018 looking at just how information spreads across Twitter and these different social media sites. And what they found robust evidence for is lies spread way faster than truths. And often it's because lies make you angry. They make you anxious. They make you agitated. All these kind of high arousal feelings, whereas like true stories either make you sad or make you feel kind of content or make you feel kind of at rest. And those just it takes forever for them to try to catch up. So once misinformation gets out there, the truth is already three laps behind and running slower. And so it makes it even more difficult, which, you know, again, this is why we need some of these bigger organizations to take the step forward and help us be better. Mm-hmm. Well, I would like to welcome back to the show for his second appearance, Jake Teeny. Jake, welcome back to another episode of Water Cooler Talk. Yeah, it's my pleasure. I was excited when I got the email. It was a fun chat last time and it's proven so far to be a fun chat this time. It'll be even funner moving forward. So <laughs> we got we got some good conversation left to go. Uh, in the last conversation we did, we had we discussed the reasoning behind being creative and you know, you guys have some creative stories on your website. But a year later, you know, as a creative yourself, how have you felt about your creation process? through this last year? This time has been, uh, well, you know, I'm a little bit of a lone wolf at heart, a little bit of an introvert. So the there's no better excuse to not hang out with people than say, well, you know, you might have a very contagious, dangerous disease. So I think I'm going to stay at home. So for me, my creative process has been fine. Most of my creative projects have all been refining works that were already established versus like kind of waiting for that muse to inspire something new. And if that were the case, this would probably have been very difficult, but because I was just forced in a house at a computer Mm -hmm. and made editing and rewriting fine. Yeah, it's interesting that at the very beginning of this pandemic, I said, I'm not going to talk about COVID unless I'm bringing on someone who's an expert in the field, because everybody has been talking about COVID, like 99% of the podcasts out there are talking about COVID. And I was like, let me be that one place where people can escape to, to have other conversations about the other thing that's going on in the world. And you're still, I think the only person that we've had COVID specific <laughs> stories on. So I was like, you know what? I'm only going to talk about COVID with you, Jake, with you. Uh, but no, I, I totally understand what you're saying. And Everyone's really taken on this last year. Obviously, the U.S. has really handled this well in the past few months. You know, uh, I have an episode coming up where we talk about what's going on in India. So it's always important to remember, you know, just because we've kind of figured this out and we can go to bars and music festivals and do all these things, you know, other parts of the country 
or other parts of the world haven't. That doesn't mean you have to stop doing your things, but I think it's always important to just remember. But as far as the creation process, it was really interesting to see how open people were to having conversations during the last year and how open people were to having conversations not related to COVID because COVID consumes so much of our time and so much of our thought process and so much of our, you know, our conscious and our self or our subconscious. I think people were almost relieved to talk about something outside of what's being talked about on every single media platform that they consume. So creativity is interesting in the sense that when you give people unbounded opportunities for what they could talk about or what they could write about, you actually see creativity often gets like stymied or pushed down mm -hmm. and you get often more creative responses when you bound them within certain parameters. And so we saw some really creative like short films that were filmed entirely in house or off cell phones or music. I just watched a video of the other guy who recreated a popular song by slapping his face in different ways and then reverberating <laughs> I saw that one. Yeah. So, you know, I think it, it has, I'm sure, stifled creativity in some senses, but also expanded it in others. And like you were saying, it's given this great opportunity for people to have these conversations. As much as I dislike talking, not dislike talking about COVID, but can feel exhausted talking about COVID so much, it's also kind of like a nice conversational starter if you're ever in an awkward conversation. Oh, about that COVID, you hear that thing? You know? Yeah, I think <laughs> SNL had a sketch like how are all of our conversations are going to go now? What vaccine did you get? Oh, oh, nice. <laughs> yes, <laughs> did you make bread? <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly right. Well, before we move on, myself and Water Cooler Talk are on a mission to help get back to different parts of the community and those who have helped build our show to where it stands today. For each new episode of the podcast, the guests will bring with them a charity of their choice to represent. On the day of their episode going live, Water Cooler Talk will give a donation to that charity in honor of the guest, as well as a global platform to spread a message of love, hope, and togetherness. And we hope you listening to this episode can join in to help spread their message to your own personal audience. Jake, your charity of choice for today's episode is Paw Chicago. Do you mind explaining a bit about the importance of animals in our life and the importance of rescue animals specifically? Yeah, Paz Chicago, my partner and I were first turned on to when we came here because one of our neighbors volunteers there. And it's just a, a great shelter for dogs, no kill shelter. And, you know, animals, I think, have we've seen a surge in adoptions uh, with COVID and being able to stay home. I worry for all the anxiety that my own COVID yeah. dog, amongst others, mm -hmm. will face upon returns to office. Um, but they often, you know, they provide not only a sense of warmth and companionship, um, but also, I think, serve to help expand our sense of empathy and who gets included and living uh, a plant-based diet now for almost a year. Well, congratulations on that. Yes. Yes. Thank you. Not that dog was ever an option before that, but, you know, just being connected <laughs> with animals, I, I think, <laughs> helps to, you know, just reaffirm our own perspective and, you know, give us, uh, give us caring for those who maybe can't control or take care of themselves in the way we can. That's always something that, you know, as someone who has spent a lot of times with dogs and worked with dogs and training dogs and dogs at and dog walked and did all every dog thing you could think of. I've always found that if you really need to know how good a person is, find out who they are around animals. I don't need someone to own a dog or own a cat or own a lizard or own a bird. Maybe not own a bird. <laughs> Sorry, Harriet. She was a previous guest who had a parrot. But how people act around animals says so much about them and how people act when alone around animals says so much about them. And I think it's important to always promote good places that are helping, you know, specifically in this case, you know, dogs and rescue dogs find good homes that can really 
help add something to someone's life. Yeah, I completely agree. All right, Jake, are you ready to jump into our final news story of the episode? Yeah, let's chat. This is from Hypebot Music Business, February 10th, 2021. Spotify patents tech to monitor speech, infer emotion. So just a disclaimer before we get into this conversation, as mentioned in a previous episode with Empress, Water Cooler Talk has had a relationship with Spotify. However, as you know, I speak freely. I'm able to do that and uh, without any bias about the platform. So no blind biases there. In the doesn't seem creepy at all department, streaming's current king, Spotify, received approval for a patent detailing the use of microphones to determine listeners' personality traits. Many people believe big tech companies are already spying on their users' behavior to create smarter algorithms that help serve better targeted ads. Have you ever opened Instagram or Facebook and saw an advertisement for something you recently discussed in conversation? While the claim has yet to be officially proven, some companies like Facebook, Amazon, and Google have stated that their devices do listen for certain words. But it has become eerie to see how well the algorithms currently in use understand your wants and needs. Based on Spotify's latest patent approval, it's not hard to see the connection. The patent, entitled Identification of Taste Attributes from an Audio Signal, details how Spotify could use microphones and its attached technology to get even deeper into its users' heads by using speech recognition to determine the user's, quote, emotional state, gender, age, or accent. The proposed tech would use its inferences about users to make listening recommendations. If it thinks you're angry, it may suggest Olivia Rodrigo's latest album, Sour. Or if you just got dumped, maybe some Olivia Rodrigo will soothe and empower your broken heart. It's a good album. I don't know if you've listened to it yet, Jake. The company also intends to throw in environmental sounds to the mix, like vehicles on a street, other people talking, birds chirping, printers printing, and so on, allowing for context-based recommendations. For example, if the algorithm believes you're in Los Angeles, it will recommend songs and artists that people visiting the West Coast typically enjoy. Many questions surrounding the patent have no clear answers, and it's not likely that Spotify will reveal more about its plans until the tech is ready. If such a product actually exists in the first place. Patents are often a legal cover for ideas that a company considers, but may ultimately never use. But if the day comes when Spotify introduces a new listening tool based off of the proposed patent, you can be certain some users will be upset. People want to know when the app is listening, and they want the ability to opt out of sharing their life with a tech giant. But it's important to remember, and anyone who's hesitant about getting a vaccine because they think there's a microchip in it should listen up. Most of us already share more data with tech giants like Spotify than we realize. Our phones know where we are, what we look for, who we speak to, what we listen to, what movies we plan to watch, and what we're hoping to purchase. Similar information is known by countless websites that we visit, and many share their data with others to help build smarter algorithms to keep us hooked on their products. Because remember, this is very key. If a product is free, you are the product. You can call it insidious, or you can call it smart business. Either way, our data isn't really ours anymore. So, Jake, I don't know your thoughts on this, but this is like a moral conundrum I've had like the past decade or so is giving my information to you know tech sites like this to make my experience online better. Because I enjoy going on my phone, on YouTube, we talked about YouTube, and being recommended videos I want to watch. I don't want to be recommended videos that I don't care to watch. And so it makes my online experience better, but it's also concerning to be like, oh, I just talked about buying a uh, dehumidifier and now I'm getting recommended dehumidifiers on Instagram. Like that's concerning to me, but is it really 
worth it. Yeah, no, I mean, what you're tapping into is something that has captivated research too for the last 10, 20 years and even gained the term, the privacy paradox, where it's this idea that people report being very concerned about sharing their data and people having access to their data, while at the same time doing very little, if anything, to control it. You know, there was a study, this is back from, gosh, the early 2000s, but, you know, one in 10, 20 to 30-year-olds had lost a job or been rejected a job opportunity because of something they posted online. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, another study from around that time, they surveyed people about, you know, how concerned would you be if your uh, sexual orientation or political status was disclosed openly to people? Of the people who were marked the most concerned about sharing this information, about 50% of them already shared that information online via their Facebook. So we have this weird sense where we want to maintain privacy, yet at the same time, our behaviors don't really demonstrate that and hence this privacy paradox. Well, I can see that as an aspect of not under truly understanding the reach of social media, because I, I think I can strongly say that in the beginning, when Facebook came out, when MySpace and, you know, you got friended by Tom, we didn't really understand the total scope of what this information could be used for. So we were more likely to share our information because, oh, I'm just sharing this information that only my friends or family can see. But now we're in a place where companies are using that information, they're selling it to who knows who. And now that information is everywhere. Yeah, yeah. I mean, definitely early on, I think we were probably naive with how our data would be used. But I mean, even to this day, there was this, you know, the big privacy revival where all these sites had to update their privacy policies. And that essentially just meant that you had to click an extra button that said, accept all cookies when you come on the page. And that's what everybody did, right? I mean, back around 2015, they did another study where people were essentially willing to sell their internet browsing history for the price of a Big Mac. It's, again, this weird difference in valuation between this kind of like felt need to be have our privacy about our data and information and yet behavior that doesn't quite match up with it. And there's there's some interesting ideas related to our evolutionary history about why this might be. Well, yeah, I remember uh, recently Facebook that had like, I think, half a million users phone numbers leaked. It was actually 533 million users data leaked. You ask people about that. They either have no idea or they don't care. Mm-hmm. All right, is this what we're giving up to be able to use a site like Facebook, to use Instagram, which owned by the same company, uh, to use YouTube? And to me, is it worth it? I I don't know. It's, it's such a tough question. Like you were saying, you know, we know the effects of what this can do, but we also have the positive effects of what these sites are giving us. If I'm sad and Spotify can give me a, you know, sad playlist that makes me feel you know, a little more comfortable being sad. I mean, is that worth it? Yeah, it all depends on the consequences, right? If I can, if Instagram can send me an ad for a new pair of shoes that I want, and so I don't have to spend an hour searching online to find the right pair of shoes, that's great. But if a health insurance company can use my 23andMe data to determine how much they should charge me on a premium, well, less great. It all depends on how that data is being used. And I think one of the biggest issues today is that it's just a complete black box for most of us. We know it's being used in Mm -hmm. some way, but aren't fully sure how. Well, and I think it also matters kind of to a point on who you are. 
I don't know about you, but I'm not like mega famous. So I don't, you know, I have less to risk <laughs> mm-hmm. by having my information out there. And I think that matters. But I think what you brought up about the 23andMe and what health insurances could do with that data, or even across the board, what the government can use with that data, it's scary to really think about all right, I could be put into this box because of what I click on a computer or what websites I click. Truthfully honest, I use incognito mode every time I go on the internet. I know it doesn't do what everyone thinks it does, but I like the aspect of not having my password stored, not uh, having my history stored. I'm not looking at anything crazy, Jake. I just want to throw that out there. But I like being able to do like research. I'll use like DuckDuckGo or, you know, another one of these sites that I feel like I can just have a fresh start every time because when I'm trying to research an episode like this episode, all right, I don't want my perception skewed by what past Adam thought was true. Yeah, that's an an interesting perspective, you know, and I, I think, again, just relates to how that data is being used. If it's going to be feeding you a specific narrative, then obviously we don't, people who are high in like truth seeking uh, aren't going to want that. But I mean, Google already will shape your recommendation mm-hmm. based on whether you type are vaccines good or are vaccines bad irrespective of your personal history, there's going to be some built-in biases into the search engine. Now it's just kind of a matter of figuring out, okay, well, what, I mean, Apple, I think is a really interesting case study where they've really been pushing privacy recently. It doesn't come with a ton of benefits for them. I was chatting with the next VP of marketing there who was part of this privacy pushing. It's like, you know, for us, it really wasn't about monetization. It was about what is good for our consumers. If I mm-hmm. were a consumer of my phone, what would I want? It, again, it just comes down to how you want your data used. And I, we just need better transparency in how it's being used because people tend to feel a little more comfortable with their data being used for recommendations for purchases or products they might want less so to get kind of what you were talking about, maybe political information or research information. Again, just having a better idea of where it's going and how it's being used could be helpful. But but don't you almost think the transparency is there, but it's often hidden in these terms and agreements that are you know, 300 pages long. And it's like Mm -hmm. a company can say, we're being transparent, Mm -hmm. but also it's buried in, I mean, as we talked about in our last episode, you know, sometimes research studies and papers are a bit confusing to the everyday person. Mm -hmm. So are the terms and agreements of uh, agreeing to something. Just, it's much easier just to scroll down to the bottom of the page and say, I agree. Yeah, you're right that it's there. I wouldn't call it transparent. It's, uh, you know, even if it's a out hidden, there. A hidden <laughs> transparency. <laughs> yeah. Yes, it's transparent behind the fully bricked wall. Yeah. Um, and so, it, again, yeah, we just, we, we this idea of privacy and this privacy paradox kind of stems from some of our evolutionary roots, or so they think, uh, regarding privacy. Social networks, social groups became very important for our survival in the wild and we needed to connect with others. And as we became more successful, we needed bigger groups. So at first, privacy was really just kind of territorial. What's my area that I get to call out for mine or kind of like person privacy, like don't come and touch me, don't come within my personal space. But as we grew into these more complex societies, a new form of privacy emerged and that is like reputational privacy. So information about you and what you've done because reputation became very important for whether you were included in the clan or not included in the clan. I mean, you can look at chimpanzees. And so when chimpanzees get scared, they'll flash their teeth a little bit bare their teeth. and uh, But chimpanzees are a very kind of hierarchical dominance uh, society that they live within. And so 
rather than reveal a chimp male chimp, rather than reveal that he was scared, he'll actually turn his back to shield the fact that his teeth are bared and will wait until his lips have come down to reface the person. So that's kind of a very rudimentary level of this kind of reputational privacy. And that's what we were working with back in those evolutionary days. You know, we were very guarded about our reputational privacy. But what happened is we still have these kind of evolutionary drives, but we're in an environment where that is just like a totally different ball game. Yeah. Right now, everything is accessible out there. There was a, a fun study where they found that just 300 likes on Facebook of different pages and things, the algorithm could predict you better than your own wife. And so, you know, we have all this data out there. And so it's this conflict between our evolutionary desire for that reputational privacy and a world where it's just impossible to control that. Again, trying to find that balance is difficult. It's like, you know, growing up evolutionarily, we had a desire for sugar and fat because they were scarce. And now they're all over the place and we just consume it like crazy, apparently to the point where, you know, we'd buy a Big Mac to give up all of our reputational privacy. It's just kind of a maladaptive result of our evolutionary past, but it's still important. And so it's a matter of kind of balancing those internal drives with what's practically consequential. I mean, and just, this is just your opinion. I'm not looking for the correct answer on this. Mm -hmm. Do you think we'll get to that point where we can find that balance or do you think technology will change so much that we'll always just be catching up to what's the next thing? Yeah, you know, I think we hit a milestone with the internet. It's like we hit that plane and now we're just getting faster internet, a little bit more information, but the basic kind of fundamentals of sharing our privacy are out there. So mm -hmm. I don't know how much it'll evolve beyond that rather than just kind of increasing efficiency and accuracy of that information. What we need really is people like you and myself who are concerned about privacy actually being involved in these corporations and online platforms that are able to use or retain that data. And until they have kind of influence or a desire to kind of affect it, then maybe we'll always be a step behind. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, something I've said multiple times when it comes to like these big government programs. It's like, as long as I know where that money is going or where that data is going specifically, I'm fine opting in. Or if it's something like Spotify where they listen to, you know, if I'm crying on my phone and Spotify listens and like, here's Olivia Rodrigo's new album. I'm not sponsored by <laughs> Olivia Rodrigo. I just want to make that very clear. Um, if I'm able to opt in or opt out of something and they give me very clear definitions, as we talked about words matter, very clear definitions of what this data is being used for. And I'm seeing this a lot more um, with social media sites or just apps that you download in general. They're like, hey, this is what we need to use your camera for. Mm -hmm. We're specifically using your contacts for this reason. And it's like, okay, I'm more willing to trust you if you're just transparent and upfront with me at the beginning, rather than finding out down the line oh, you just sold my information to, you know, hackers across the sea. And now my credit card information is all over the internet. Kind of back to the point you said earlier, there is a responsibility of these big tech companies to not put the onus on the consumer, but instead, hey, you have the resources to make these changes to do something like Apple is doing where they're like, we don't care necessarily about the profits of this, but we're doing this because we think it's the right thing to do. You may not agree with Apple across the board, but if these big tech companies like Spotify, Facebook, Instagram, Google, uh, Twitter, Apple, whatever, if they can be more humble by their power and say, we have a power to make 
significant change in how we take in data and how we use that data. And they use that power for the betterment of society instead of the betterment of their investors. And I get they have to make money. But at the end of the day, I always look at it as what are you leaving this world as? You know, are you leaving this world as somebody who is money hungry and only is, you know, caring about you? Or are you leaving this world as someone who cares about the greaterment of society and what it can provide for the future of humanity? Yeah, no, I mean, that's exactly right. There's, it's just an asymmetric power balance right now. All these companies, you know, they have our data, they have our information, they have how we like to click what we're willing to click on. And all we have are our little voices being like, please don't, we don't want that, <laughs> you know. Please don't it's, release. I was just trying to see what my butt looked like from another perspective. Don't release my butt pics. Uh, Jake, thank you for taking the time, uh, the second time, to come in to share your perspective on some of these strangest and most interesting news stories the world has to offer in a productive and meaningful conversation. Listeners, if you'd like to connect with Jake, you can do so by supporting his website, everydaypsych.com, and reading his weekly blog. Once again, that's everydaypsych.com. For those that didn't subscribe from the last episode, uh, it's it's a refreshed and redesigned site. You did some work on it there, Jake, I see. So there's something new if you haven't visited it since then. And Jake recently knocked out a conversation of his own with Dr. Richard Nesbitt and continued on one of our themes from our last conversation in helping bring uh, research psychology to larger audiences, helping make those papers is more accessible to a bigger audience. And of course, as always, to make it easier for you, those links will be included in the description of this episode and on our website, www.watercoolertalkpod.com. So kind of circling back to content creation, there's a reason they say consistency is king. What have you learned about yourself and how you hold yourself accountable to you know these weekly blogs you're releasing and just sharing yourself in general? Uh, yeah. Well, one thing I learned is I'm less consistent than I have <laughs> <laughs> was originally and have broadcast myself. So that needs an update. Um, but what, what, you know, real drives really drives me is kind of the abilities of research and psychology to help people's life. And just as you mentioned earlier, the lack of transparency in finding those answers. Mm -hmm. And so kind of that other oriented motivation has really driven my consistency or lately a little lack of inconsistency or lack of consistency. But yeah, you know, just that there's a lot of cool stuff out there. And I think people's lives, like you said, trying to make the greater or betterment of the world. This is one way at least I could do it. Yeah, well, I appreciate that. All right. As always, thank you to all my listeners for listening to another episode of Water Cooler Talk, the only such podcast on the internet hosted by myself and guest hosted today by Jake, where we take the strangest and most interesting real-life news stories from around the world, and well, just trying to have a good old conversation about some of the ideas discussed in those bizarre news stories on a consistent schedule. All right, Jake, we are to my favorite part of the show. You've been here before. You know what it's all about. I'm going to hand off the show to you. Jake, the floor is yours to close out this episode of Water Cooler Talk. Well, first off, thank you everyone who's listening. You know, if you want to hear more, you can definitely go to everydaypsych.com. But I think what the primary takeaway from today is, is don't stop questioning. Even your most hardest, firmest beliefs, 
there's always a chance that, you know, doing a quick Google search, even if it's not to find a contradictory opinion, but just to kind of reaffirm why you believe what you believe um, can be valuable. And uh, don't trust anything that feels too right. You know, <laughs> it's usually that's a bad good, sign. That's good advice in research, in dating, in personal, just whatever. <laughs> always, always question if it feels too good. Uh-huh. Uh, Jake, once again, it's always a pleasure to have you on the show. Hopefully we can have you on the show in less than a year's time. So maybe <laughs> maybe it'll be another COVID story we can cover. I'm sure we could figure something out. No, well, next episode, it'll be totally different. People won't expect the topics we're about to discuss on the next episode, but it's always a pleasure. <laughs> it's so fun to be able to talk with you and have these amazing conversations. I always look forward to it. So I appreciate you coming, wanting to come back first off and then being here for this episode today. Yeah, well, thank you, Adam. It's always a pleasure. Until next time, listeners. Peace. This is the story of a podcast that takes weird news from across the world. And while many of these stories may seem fake, they're absolutely not because they're real.